the Breakdown is sponsored by the Soundtrack of America, Made in Tennessee. And this episode was recorded in Gallatin, where we met Jesse McReynolds, one of the oldest living members of the Grand Ole Opry. If you've never visited the Opry, can I recommend it? It's an incredible place to experience live music and immerse yourself in the history of country and bluegrass. You can discover even more about the people, places and events that shaped music history with Tennessee Music Pathways, a statewide programme that preserves the legacy of music in Tennessee. If you want to visit the places that inspired so many of the records we talk about on this podcast, check out tnvacation.com to start planning your trip. And now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to The Breakdown, the podcast that uncovers the greatest sounds and stories in bluegrass music, one iconic record at a time. I'm Patrick McGonigal, the fiddle player with the Lonely Heartstring Band. And I'm Emma John, author, journalist and all-round bluegrass novice. So this week we are talking about Jim and Jesse and the record Live in Japan. It's actually called The Jim and Jesse Show, brackets Live in Japan. Uh, It was released in 1976 on Old Dominion Records, which is the record label that was owned and founded by Jim and Jesse. Um, And it was actually recorded at Sugino Koto Hall in uh, Tokyo on May the 2nd, 1975. And it features uh, Garland Shooping playing the banjo, Keith McReynolds, who's Jesse's son, playing the bass, and he's 16 years old at the time of the recording, which is kind of incredible. And uh, Joe Meadows is playing the fiddle. And then, of course, Jim McReynolds is playing guitar and singing tenor, and Jesse is singing uh, lead most of the time and mandolin. Uh, although Jim does, Jim and Jesse do share the lead singing on this record. I mean, the the Japanese crowd was going nuts for them, clearly. It's it, it's it's difficult to tell because they don't seem to have recorded a lot of reaction from the crowd. We don't we don't hear a lot of what was happening, but just the fact they play so many reprises suggests that you know, they they knew that they were, they want to hear this song again and they do. They they will immediately play the tune that they've just played all over again. I love it. Well, thank you very much and I'd like to say it's uh It is a real pleasure for us to be here in Japan with you folks. And uh, this is my little brother, Jesse. Would you all make him welcome here tonight? And a lot of a lot of bluegrass bands in the 70s, especially, were going to Japan uh, and and doing tours that were wildly successful. I mean, J.D. Crow in the New South, uh, that with their famous lineup um, with Tony Rice and Ricky Skaggs and Bobby Sloan. And Jerry Douglas, they went over there in 1976 and also released a record called Holiday in Japan. But let's start by talking a little bit about Jim and Jesse, because they are one of the brother duos uh, that is absolutely central to um, the direction of bluegrass. And and certainly that kind of second generation, the second wave of, of bluegrass that came through immediately after Bill Monroe and Flat and Scruggs. And the Stanley Brothers. And um, just like many of the acts that, um, that, they, were, that they had learned from, this is siblings. And, and they're, a lot of the songs that they will go on to play in this record um, are, are also from 
brother mm-hmm. duet acts like the Leuven brothers, the Delmore brothers, the Stanley brothers, um, the Monroe brothers. It's it's a kind of again a fascinating phenomenon from bluegrass yeah. that this was uh, this was a real category of music, and it was all to do with uh, singing harmonies with your brother mm-hmm. and one of you singing as high a tenor as you could muster. When we're through with the calling, not a good thing falling, that's when I miss you most. When I'm feeling lonely, thinking I'm lonely, that's when I miss you most. I'm deep in meditation, searching on creation for the one that's so It's like, it's almost, uh, you know, all those acts that you just mentioned, Delmore, Monroe, Stanley Brothers. Jim and Jesse kind of feel like, to me, like they're they're all of those brothers in one duet. You know, they've got Leuven Brothers-like harmonies with that kind of, uh, with Jim's kind of laser beam, pure high tenor that's just so controlled and 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 always right in tune. Um just kind of like the Leuven Brothers sound, but they've also got a really driving bluegrass sound. I mean, Jesse Jesse McReynolds' mandolin playing, his chop and his feel when he's soloing and when he's doing anything is just so driving, and he's, he's got such a forward lean. Everything's just a little bit ahead of the beat. Um, kind of in a monroe style, but also, I mean, Jesse, of course, went on to be one of the most virtuosic mandolin players to ever play the instrument. So they really kind of had it all. Um and they were nice guys. Nice guys and writing great material. And, and you know, Jesse McReynolds is, is still around and we got a, had a, a chance to sit down with him. But uh, he's one of the last living members of that first generation bluegrass communities. And that's an incredible thing. So we feel very lucky that we got to hang out with, uh, with, with Jesse for an afternoon. highlights album um it starts off with ashes of love which was actually um was actually their take on a song written in 1951 by uh jack anglin and johnny wright and if you listen to the original and i'm not sure that patrick ever has and i think we should do that right now uh it's a very different kind of groove So 
So yes, that's definitely not a bluegrass feel. I was trying to think of how to describe it. I mean, in my head, that's rockabilly with a, a Hawaiian beat. Totally. It's got the doghouse bass with the four on the floor walking around. Definitely not bluegrass at all. And that was recorded by and written by Johnny and Jack was the name of the act. They were members of the Opry. Um, Jack Anglin was from a farm in Franklin, Tennessee. Johnny Wright was married to Kitty Wells. But there's a quite a sad end to their story, uh, which is that um, in 1963, um, there were four members of the Grand Old Opry who died in a plane accident. And um, Anglin was um, going to the funerals for some of these members. Who, uh, who were the members that died? Was that the, the, the plane crash with Patsy Cline? That's correct, mm. yes. So it was... Cowboy Copas, Randy Hughes, and Hawkshaw Hawkins. Um, he, Jack had been at all of their um, their funerals, and he went to a barber's um, to get ready for Patsy Cline's service. And he made him late. The haircut made him late. And he rushed to try and get to Patsy's service. And he had a crash of his own and lost control and died at the scene in his car. One of my favorites on this record is, of course, When I Stop Dreaming, which is a Leuven Brothers classic song um, that they that the the uh, Jim and Jesse actually recorded on a tribute to the Lewin Brothers, but they play it uh, live here in Japan on this recording, and I think one of the reasons I love this particular recording is because it's very Jim and Jesse in the groove and in the feel, but Jim on that high tenor absolutely nails that kind of Lewin Brothers sound that we mentioned earlier. Jim is so clearly steeped in that type of singing and and so their voices are just so suited for it it just is a really standout moment on this record the vocal acrobatics are on full display yeah and also to me they get that kind of lugubrious feel that the lumen brothers have Mm -hmm. that that's the kind of emotion they put into it it just the song feels almost sticky while they're singing it treacly totally the worst that i've Jim and Jesse grew up um, on a farm near Carfax, Virginia, which is really close to uh, Coburn and St. Paul, um, which are the kind of nearest towns to where the Stanley brothers grew up. And um, like the Stanley brothers, they had a mother who played guitar. Um, They also had a father, Claude, who played banjo. 
um, the grandfather who who played fiddle, Charles, he actually played on the Bristol Sessions in um, the 1927 recordings that began country music. He played with a group called the Bull Mountain Moonshiners. And the thing I love um, about reading about their childhood is that they had square dances in their living room um, at the end of the week. They would apparently roll up the linoleum and uh, dance. Um, they also were inspired by seeing the Carter family play at their local schoolhouse. And um, and once their dad finally bought a radio, uh, which was a big deal, um, they had music on all day, every day, uh, and obviously listened to the Opry on the weekends. Um, they were too young to go into the war during World War Two, but they weren't apparently too young to work in the mines. And that was something they did when they were young, uh, alongside their dad, Claude, who was injured, I think, quite badly in a in a roof fall accident at one point. And another thing that struck me about Jim and Jesse um, is realizing that they actually formed when Jim got out of the, the military after World War II in 1947. That was when they first started playing. Uh, Jesse was a teenager at that point, and they took a break when Jesse himself went and served in Korea in the Korean War. But they formed in the 40s, which is around the time when Bill Monroe was forming the Bluegrass yeah. Boys. Um, it took a really long time for them to make it in any sense. Um, I mean, in any sense, like they just didn't make any money for decades. They they would go and do radio shows and they would go on the schoolhouse tours like the early Bluegrasses did. Um, but they apparently were making uh, more money selling cakes for um, the cakewalks that they did than they were from from actually playing the music. I grew up in the gloom of the cotton field We grew and we were doing calluses all over my hands I didn't have a honeymoon, I couldn't leave my cotton loom I swore my and as Patrick mentioned, they had to take a break when Jesse himself was sent to serve in the army, um, in his case, in the Korean War. He was about 23 years old at the time, and in fact, when we sat down to chat to him, he began by talking about that period of his life and also about how the band took off after he returned home. I was in Korea for... 12 months, and uh, I had the pleasure of driving Marilyn Monroe around over there when when she uh, she came to Korea. And I, I worked for Spatial Services then, and, and I was her Jeep driver for uh, about a week she stayed over there. Well, I was uh, so uh, disoriented and discouraged with, with life as a whole because I just got married uh, before I went to Korea and had a child coming, and uh, and I, all I wanted to do was get out of Korea. Merlin Merle did, didn't mean nothing to me mm. at that time. Your brother had already served in the Army by that point. Did that yeah, did he, it help that he'd had that experience? No, we, we never discussed uh, the uh, things he'd done. In, in fact, that's when we, when we started playing, when he got out of the Army in 1947. But I just, the only thing Will said, I, I said, well, he was a truck driver before he went in. And I said, are you going to drive a truck or are you going to play music? <laughs> so, so we decided that uh, we'd drive music and we stayed with it. When he come back, 
he was a different different person, really, because he uh, we always uh, got along good, and of course we we still get, got along good. But but if he, he used to talk talk about the army, why he would tell about uh, the bad things he put these guys through. If they'd mess up, he'd make them uh, dig foxholes in the hard. Uh, hard road out there and sleep out there, you know. Oh, wow. And Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County down by the Green River Paradise Lake? Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking Mr. Peabody's full train to away. Well, it affected our, our relationship uh, quite a bit because before we went in the Army, we were just old buddies and like brothers would be, you know. And when he came back, he was, he had, had used to have this authority over people and he sort of took that authority over me. Was Jim always the boss? Oh yeah, yeah. I would hire the band and he would pay him, And uh, it was his job to, to take care of that. And I sort of took care of the music part and he took care of the business part. Yeah. So it worked out pretty good that way. Yeah. Because he, he had authority to, uh, He'd been used to having authority over people, and I was—I just wanted to be a member of the band, which I was. Yeah. We don't, we never communicated that much. If we ever have a, had a little problem with with anything, we'd just let it go, and we—he'd go his way, and I'd go mine, and, and I'd go to the back of the bus, and uh, he—if he was driving, well, that's how we'd settle our arguments. You know, we'd we'd just get away from each other. What was it like? Going to Japan in the 1970s it, as a it was writer. it was the most different thing we ever done in show business. I mean, uh, back here we were just average band people, you know. I mean, we had uh, gosh, Dolly Parton and uh, Bill Anderson and a lot of the people, Porter Wagner, and all these people was the stars back then, and and we were not stars over here. We were just we was lucky enough to get on the Grand Ole Opry through the sponsorship of uh, Martha White Mills. And uh, and that's how we how we made it that far. I never thought anything about uh, we would ever get to the Grand Ole Opry. We were treated over there like we were superstars, you know. I mean, everywhere we went, they had guards all around us. And, and, uh, and when they went, we'd have an intermission during the show and and uh, they'd have to put guards all around us and keep them from people push the table. We'd get behind the table and they'd push us into the wall, being trying to get to us, you know. And uh, it was it was a lot so much different. It sort of spoiled us a little bit. Did you have any idea that you would be so popular out there? No, I didn't. But uh, they had heard the records over there a lot, and uh, and. Uh, they were familiar with with all the stuff we'd done. In fact, all that we uh, played some places where they had Japanese bands that would open the show for us, and they'd do all the songs that we ever recorded, you know. <laughs> but the way they would say their words were <laughs> were were peculiar sometimes. But, but it must have been really strange to hear your songs sung back to you by Japanese players and pickers. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, it was really flattering to uh, yeah. to hear them, but we had never been copied that way before by other bands. 
Here's another song that we've been singing uh, most of our lives. I guess this is one of the first songs that most bluegrass pickers learn to sing. It's been sung many times, many ways, and we hope you like the way we do it for you. Called I Wonder Where You Are Tonight. songs we should say that this was one of the things that attracted us to this album the fact that jim and jesse were greeted as rock stars in japan a country with no tradition of bluegrass and so we asked our friend akira otsuka uh, of the bluegrass band bluegrass 45 to explain to us why there's such a cult fascination with the music in his homeland Japanese people like everything. They will listen to Latin music, Hawaiian music, country music, folk music. Some people really get into it, and they just love, they dig in and dig in and dig in. FEN, Far East Network, is a radio station for American uh, soldiers after the World War II. And they played many kind of music and news and whatever. And they used to have country music show, too. And... This is back in fifties. Some people started listening to that, and they liked the country music and bluegrass. During the war, it was prohibited to own a violin or play Western music. So maybe it was like a coming back. It was free to enjoy that kind of music after the war. So it just maybe bounced back. People were attracted to American culture. A lot of people studied English after that. There is a instrument called shamisen, which has three strings and catskin head. So it sounds similar to banjo. So maybe that appeals to some of the people. You know, banjo, you hear the similarity to shamisen, and maybe, you know, it didn't sound too strange to them. When I started in sixty or maybe there was no internet, no instruments like uh, instruction book, no DVD, no VHS. All we had were LPs. <clears throat> so we put on the record player and we recorded them too tape recorder, and then we slow it down to half speed and pick up notes. Or you go to a concert 
and sit up in front and watch other people play or catch them in the backstage. Hey, show me the break you just played. Uh, back in early 70s, Jiman Jesse, Del McCurry, Jerry Crow, Country Gentleman, Ralph Stanley went and every single place they played, up to like 2,500 seat, big hall, everything was sold out. The popularity was really, really good in the early 70s. They interviewed J.D. Crow about it, about going to Japan, and J.D. said something like, I didn't want to come back to the States. Winter's coming on and it's plenty below The river's rose over so we're gonna I think of as a very Jim and Jesse one in my head is Old Sleefoot. Totally. I've heard, you know, their versions of that song so often, even though it's been recorded by so many people. They burn it. It's one of those ones where I never feel like I've quite understood what's going on. The bear's being a menace to a farm, but when you get to the end of the verse and chorus each time, it says, some folks say he looks a lot like me. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's... Is, is that because the singer is saying, I look like a bear, or because he's saying, I, I am, am a bear? bear. <laughs> dun, dun, Let's yeah, blow knows? this thing wide open. Also, in this particular recording, it's at 160 beats per minute, but it feels even faster. It's got this really driving feel. And one of the things I love about this particular recording is that... Uh, Jim sings lead on this, and so he's got that kind of high tannery sound on his lead, and he kind of floats above this rumbling train underneath him that's just barreling along at 160 beats per minute, and he's got this lilty, beautiful way of kind of floating on the surface of that groove, uh, and it's a really great version. (laughs) Jim, you made slew foot a hit in Tokyo, okay. (laughs) Talking about things being fast, what about El Comanchero? Yeah. That's pretty speedy. It's it's also the most 1970s bluegrass song on the whole record, in a great way. Well, I think from everything I could find online that Jesse was the first person to play that as a bluegrass really? song. Yeah. I, I tried to see if anybody earlier had had done the bluegrass version, and I don't think they had. And it's probably to do with the fact that he was probably the only mandolin player at the time who could even who attempt could it. it. Chero uh, means someone who dances on the cumber, apparently, which was a dance-oriented music popular throughout Latin America. And um, obviously the tune itself was written by the famous Puerto Rican composer Rafael Hernandez Marin, um, who, who wrote many, many pop songs, popular songs, hmm. um, f- f- in um, 
Puerto Rico. Well, he was in in the States, but in that um, in that kind of cultural milieu. This is one where Jesse does not do his cross picking style mandolin playing and this recording, but he does kind of display his ability to just shred the mandolin um, with with what feels like a thousand notes a second flying by. Uh, and he's super clean and he's super in time and he's got his classic forward lean on that time. And uh, he just plays some incredible stuff on this tune and the audience goes nuts for it. But also, as I was saying about this this being the most 70s, it's got a whole bunch of, uh, of uh, I, what would Bill Monroe call them? It's got a bunch of wrong chords in it. Chords that are, uh, you know, lots of uh, secondary dominance and minor chords. And the banjo is playing right on the bridge and getting that big clanging banjo tone. And it, it this one seems to me like the most time capsule recording on the record. But it's a super fun, uh, different kind of instrumental. <laughs> The one thing potentially Jesse was not as good at was playing fiddle, I think. When you listen to Westphalia and Dixie Hoedown and listen to the quality of the twin fiddling, I think (laughs) Joe Meadows is slightly showing him up there. I would say so. As a fiddle player, I really enjoyed listening to Joe Meadows on this whole record. I have to admit that I had not really listened to Joe Meadows play before this, but he he weaves through the whole record. He does the traditional driving bluegrass sound. He plays some incredible kind of Vassar licks. Um, on Blue Ridge Mountain Blues, right in the beginning of the record, uh, he takes a fiddle break that is just a great trad Vassar solo. <laughs> Joe played with the Stanley Brothers uh, back uh, in the 60s and 70s, I guess. And, uh, and Garland Schupin worked with, uh, I worked with, played shows with different groups that he played with. And I never heard anybody play banjo as fast as he did, you know. So I said, that guy, he knows what he's doing, you know. On the five-string banjo from the state of North Carolina, a real fine banjo picker and... Uh, He's going to pick one for us, like Heartbreak Mountain. Garland Shooping, let's make him welcome. Garland was a, a unique person. He, uh, he used to just pick his banjo up sometimes and hold it up and say, I love you, I love you. (laughs) 
I'm the only one left in that much. <laughs> rest wow. Of, rest of them have passed on. This is my son on the end, Keith. He played with about 18 years. Now wow. his, his son's playing with me. <laughs> that was a really the first time we went to Japan. That's when we did that. We, uh, Robert Tanaka and uh, what's the other boy's name? It used to work with him. Uh, Everett Lilly, who I'm thinking about. So the Lilly brothers, they were the per people who set up the tour or, or yeah. they suggested yeah, they, that you uh, go? They, they helped him set up the tour, yeah. They took a lot of people there before and we was fortunate enough to get to go over there and, and he wanted he wanted to record it live. So uh, we made a deal with him to, uh, in fact, we went back to Japan the second time. There's another album like this, but it's just a single album. And uh, we went the second time about a, a year later. And uh, he, he said he recorded this the, that one too, and and we came back to the United States, and and uh, we said we wrote him a letter and told him that we didn't think uh, we should do another album live over there. He said, "Well, I'm sorry, but it's too late. We've done printed them." <laughs> <laughs> That was our experience of talking to Dr. Jesse McReynolds. Dr. Jesse McReynolds. Just been awarded an honorary doctorate. And I, we also were lucky enough after the interview, uh, uh, the, the, there was a mandolin placed in Jesse's hands and, and he started playing and, and sounded great and was playing his cross-picking stuff. And it was one of, the, one of the thrills of my bluegrass life to sit three feet away from Jesse McReynolds playing a cross-picking version of, of uh, Dixie Hoedown. And, uh, and he can, not only was he, can he still play the mandolin great, but he was talking about how he's working up a new way of playing with, he's got a little notch in his fingernail so he can play one, one of the two paired mandolin strings. He's writing new tunes. He was sitting there in front of us and immediately with the mandolin in his hands, he was writing and creating and working. And you can see why Jim and Jesse really had a long and illustrious career because immediately at 89 years old, almost 90, Jesse gets a mandolin in his hands and he's creative. He's writing, he's playing, he's soloing, he's singing. Very cool to witness. that's the end of the show. Thank you to Jesse McReynolds and to his bandmate Mike Scott, who kindly lent us his 200-year-old home to record in. You can check that out at grandinheritance.com. Thank you also to Akira Otsuka of Bluegrass 45. And as ever, if you want to hear more from Patrick, check out the Lonely Heartstring Band's albums on Spotify, especially their latest, Smoke and Ashes. And you can get hold of my latest book, Wayfaring Stranger, which is all about bluegrass music, on Amazon. See you next time. 
Thanks to our sponsors, The Soundtrack of America, Made in Tennessee. And don't forget to check out tnvacation.com to start planning your trip now.